weeping. He's sitting there weeping because he's like, man, I will never get here. Like this... I have tried, I have tried so hard, and I have. Hey, Obi-Wan, I've made some good ones. I've made some good ones, right? Yes. But man, that the good year, Wine Country with Russell Crowe. I can't do this. I can't, I can't beat do this. this. I can't beat this. Ridley Scott, I bow to you. Sometimes I see him at you know screenings of Pulp Fiction, his own movie, and he's just crying because it's not as good as the good year. He's, no, he's just, just like thinking about that. He's like, you know, I love that I'm really trying hard to be a shepherd speech. I think I did pretty good in writing that for yeah. Sam Jackson. Did it's pretty right. good. But when Russell Crowe tries that Merlot when the French sun is setting just right behind him. I'll kill her! <laughs> <laughs> Hula burgers! They should have been drinking Merlot! His wife, I've heard, has to talk to him at least once a week to tell him, don't quit cinema, Quentin. Don't. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. But it's his eye, the gump! <laughs> and Don, you, the unicorns, what have you done? Really, Scott's way into unicorns. Welcome to The Academy. <laughs> welcome to The Gets Patrick. Oh. I'm not the gump. I'm not the gump. <laughs> So, Patrick, I came up with something. There are only two kinds of movie fans. Yes. <laughs> there are Thief of Hearts people, and there are Legend people. That's interesting, yes. <laughs> There's yes. Those, really the only two movies that there are. <laughs> That's the dichotomy when, it, when you break it down. <laughs> when you break it down really to, like, the simplest idea of movies. You're either into Thief of Hearts or you're into Legend. And, hey, you know. I think I'm a Thief of Hearts guy. <laughs> yeah, same. I'm a Thief of Hearts. You know, I'd rather watch, uh, you know, Norm uh, almost have a heart attack walking up a steep hill than... <laughs> well, I felt so bad because it's like, this really, this episode comes down to, like, just personal taste for me. That yeah. unlike any other of our previous 100 episodes have, because it's like a bad erotic thriller that's half-assed and confusing like Thief of Hearts mm-hmm. still seems more exciting than a very handsomely put together movie about fairies and sprites. Well, I think the thing is that, you know, Thief of Hearts exists in a place populated by people. Things happen. Uh, legend exists. It took us a while to figure out what city it took place in, but we ended up figuring it out. Yeah, I was legend. Like, I looked at Jen. I was like, "Where the hell is this taking place?" Yeah, is it L.A.? No, not yeah, so L.A. I don't think it's L.A. <laughs> Maybe like Seattle. Nah, it can't be Seattle. Not. Well, I, I, uh, I don't know, but yeah, it's a. Well, we're of course talking. We're back to Scott Scott this week. We're talking yeah. about 1985's Legend. Yes. And uh, this was a first time watch for me. You know, I've made it pretty clear over 100 episodes. I'm not fun. And so fantasy and the world's, <laughs> the world's beyond don't do a lot for me. Yeah, if, you, if, a, if someone tried to put a sorting hat on you, you'd, you'd fucking I punch know. it. Yeah, I'd be like, <laughs> uh, just hand me my Blu-ray copy of Nebraska. I'd like to watch that again instead. <laughs> <laughs> the school I'm going to is the one from Election. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, the down-to-earth... Um, Salty Americana 
of Alexander Payne. A little more of my alley. Yes. Star Trek, what about Schmidt? Yeah, I know. I know. Star Trek in the darkness, what about? I, I, about Schmidt. I would, oh, I would pay $100 to a movie where it was like a Star Trek movie and then Jack Nicholson as Schmidt is just inexplicably on the crew. Oh, that'd be so good. Or like, it's like, um, you know how like in Star Trek Next Generation, they had like that like chamber they could recite Shakespeare. Like they would like, like they could create fantasy worlds. They just go to, they go to about Schmidt world all the time. They just go to like Alexander Payne's like brutally sad Nebraska. (laughs) Worf is just constantly hanging out in the world of downsizing. (laughs) Worf loves downsizing. Oh, yeah. So it's, you know, we were just talking, hey, we were just talking wine country. Good year. Double feature with Sideways. Mm. I think you have a good wine double. Yeah. Wine double. Um, Hashtag wine double. But yeah, this is Ridley Scott. We talked about it a few episodes ago. He, I, 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 I'm not sure, like, in everything I've read, I haven't heard him explicitly say, like, a line like, my mother read us Brothers Grimm and. Hans Christian Andersen stories growing up, or they were like my favorite books when mm. I was a kid. But these, they, they seem to have like really had an effect on him because he was working on that Tristan and he sold story after the duelists for a mm. long time, shelved it for Alien and um, Blade Runner, but then came back to like a true, like, a, like really pure fantasy. Abstract. Yeah, abstract is one way of putting it, too. Uh, And it's interesting um, because um, the author of one of the books we're reading, he actually said his belief is that it's the third part of a loose trilogy of fairy tales from Ridley Scott because he believes Alien and Blade Runner also have fairy tale elements as well. I I think you could start. I don't know about Alien. I guess it is a a woman walks into the dark woods kind of story. Yeah, it, it has like that Grimm, uh, Grimm's fairy tale, um, like, you know, don't bring the thing you shouldn't bring in. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I guess they, I guess there is kind of an element to all of them, which is yeah. interesting. It's, which is interesting. And I guess, you know, really Scott's so old, he probably did grow up in a time when the best entertainment available to someone like age 10 and under was Brothers Grimm books and stuff Honestly, like that. Yeah, like he's he's like grew up in a time when people would like tell the story of like Reynard the Fox or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they only yeah. got power the year after he was born. So God. no, I don't know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but... I forgot. Yeah, he like uh, he had uh, the first cars, he, the first, you know, hot rods he got were like, you know, powered by his feet. Yeah, but he, <laughs> um, you know, he was reeling after he after Blade Runner and mm-hmm. He went back to this, and I think you had mentioned before we jumped on that I, you said your dad thought this was aiming for a Star Wars type yeah. movie. And I definitely could see he's definitely aiming for like certainly like much more family friendly. Mm-hmm. He 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 did the classic filmmaker thing when some, I've seen this with a lot of filmmakers when something doesn't go right. I made this one for my kids. Oh my like, god, <laughs> to garner sympathy, but like his kids are like twenty. When this came yeah. out, I made this for my large son. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I don't know. For, I, I made legend he, for my twenty-year-old. And son. I think it's because he, um, he was reeling because it's like, you know, Alien was 
huge, but Blade Runner, we talked ad nauseum yes. about the difficulties there, both during production and then also in kind of the marketing and selling and eventual financial and critical drubbing Blade Runner basically took. So, you know, he goes back to this idea and I think he thought because he, this was a little more <laughs> also um, the big thing that he thought too, is that this was all shot in England. We mentioned before uh, the differences that British filmmakers have found with American crews or going back to our James Cameron episode, American filmmakers with British crews. Ridley was on his home turf at the um, Pinewood Studios, 007 stage. This is mm. the biggest stage that they have there because they built this entire fo- forest set on this stage. Oh, that's it, it's an incredible. I mean, it apparently had its own ecosystem and they had, like, you know, rivers and lakes and animals and all sorts of stuff was just there. And then it's just such a stunning creation but i don't he did not realize that um this production would be as fraught the post-production would be as troubling and that this would turn into another one of those which version of this damn movie do we watch uh are there versions there are there are other cuts of this movie there is a director's cut i watched the theatrical i assume you watched theatrical as well i did Uh, Based on my reading before and after, the director's cut seems to be the preferable version. It's longer because, you know, at 90 minutes, this movie is so picked to the bone to get to that 90 minutes level that it does become a little surreal and difficult to, like, pinpoint any what what is hap- what the drama is, what's yeah going on really at all it almost feels primordial or like this is like like the first legend or so it feels like it's so bare bones like it seems like it exists in a world without like king it's almost like you could edit this and maybe like film one or two more scenes and this could be like an adam and eve story yeah it's like almost that like and i also think it's almost a silent film too. yes big big time um which i think this is kind of the you know we'll get to it here in a moment as we kind of dig in on it but this is almost the peak of ridley scott visual ad man yeah rather dude. than vis- than like i work with actors and make movies in hollywood <laughs> that, that is entertaining that's <laughs> so funny i was like legit thinking that watching because it's like you watch this movie and it's like the visuals are a hundred percent there. Yes. All the technical aspects are there. It's a gorgeous movie. It's a gorgeous film, but then like the human connection just is not there at all. And that's like, yeah, and that's like Ridley Scott's strengths as a filmmaker, for better or for worse. Yeah, His strengths I mean, and weaknesses, rather. This, yeah, this makes Blade Runner look like a Mike Lee film in terms of <laughs> human yeah. connection. This so make, it makes of... it makes Blade Runner look like Gosford Park. Yeah, yeah, or like Robert, a, yeah, Robert Altman movie or something. Just yeah, about exactly. People, like, like wandering around, hanging out. Yeah, people like getting to intimately know each other and like characters. Yeah, there's just because it's just like this is such a sparse. Like the world, there's there's only one normal person we see the entire movie. It's it's fleeting. Yeah, fleeting second, and <laughs> she's she's a uh, spoiler alert. She's gone pretty quick. Yeah, the um. <laughs> Yeah, the biggest influence cinematically on Scott for this movie was um, 
he it's an interesting collection of influences uh jean jacques uh jean cocteau's sorry oh, okay. i also said uh jacques cousteau Ooh. jean cocteau's <laughs> uh beauty and the beast which i have never seen mm. uh he also um was deeply influenced and actually pitched disney on this with the early animated movies from disney was a huge thing for him wow. about his style but disney was like you're this sounds like a monster movie as well. <laughs> yeah. And and he also um uh went back to Citizen Kane and the Xanadu sequences in Citizen Kane. Wow. Were also on his mind. Um he he took it even further when it came to design and storyboarding. Apparently they had four hundred and eleven pages of storyboards for this movie. Oh my god. And uh it's very like and you know and he was not interested in making a movie because this was the era of movies like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, mm-hmm. even uh, the uh, Time Bandits. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, others, too. I mean, movies Never like... Never Ending Story. Never Ending Story, Kroll. Oh, Kroll, <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. You know, this... It was uh, the the last time before, actually, I think right now, because I actually think fantasy is as big as it's ever been in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Uh, with the... Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, that's uh, premiering tonight, the new Lord of the Rings show. And even the adjacent Marvel type and Harry Potter type stuff have those elements to them. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, he wanted to make something darker, a little bit grimmer, if you will. Mm. Um, And, you know, again, he said for his for his children, (laughs) in a way. Uh, So basically, he hired a screenwriter named William Hortzberg, who actually also worked with good friend Alan Parker on the movie Angel Heart. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> a so much, that, a much like more a... Academy Academy movie if there yes. ever was one. <laughs> also another connection to the world because Alan Parker was another one of those ad guys. Yep, exactly. One of the RSA guys. And this guy was a really interesting guy, kind of a bohemian novelist whose books fell into the kind of fantastical and surreal and stuff like that. So oh. he he seemed like a uh, interesting choice mm-hmm. for this. But you know, Ridley also, as we've you know come to know, he really likes relying and working with the screenwriter to build it out. But not actually he being the writer himself because he's so busy with all the visual elements and that kind of thing, <laughs> you know. And so it took him a little bit to kind of dive in on this develop this put it together but yeah he just kept coming back to the idea of fairy tale and mythological story you know his idea you know he wanted to make a once upon a time right story yeah and so they um they went through uh apparently about 15 revisions on the script oh no and when they and as we mentioned they went when they went into production they had they were they took a look at all sorts of different actors, characters, studios, um, just general styles. And um, the interesting thing is when they ended up casting Tom Cruise, they had to make sure that every one of the other actors around him were shorter than him, which oh led God. to using sh- short actors. <laughs> yeah, that's why Billy Barney's involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> and why the Gump is like uh, a child, and then he has the voice mm-hmm. of a normal guy. Well, there's an interesting story there, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. But a few of the other interesting actors they looked at to play the lead role of Jack. Um, get this: Johnny Depp, Jim Carrey, and Robert Downey Jr. were all oh. considered. Carrey would have crushed it. I Jim think Carrey, really young Jim Carrey would have. Um... I don't. I think like well, the thing about it is like I'm looking at this photo of Tom Cruise, Mia Sarah, and this unicorn. Yeah, Tom Cruise is like otherworldly, androgynous, pretty. In this yes, photo. he has Tilda Swinton energy. Yeah, I don't think Jim Carrey could have gotten there with that. Well, I think here's my take. I think Jim Carrey would have like imbued like more character to his the the role of Jack, and I think that would have made it. Far, but the, the thing though is that's not what Ridley Scott is going for. Ridley I Scott's think he going. Yeah. Um, he would have had more fun with it, but Ridley Scott. I mean, that's the other thing about this movie is that Ridley Scott is many has many amazing skills and is known for many amazing things. Being playful mm-hmm. is not one of them. Not at all. And I think this movie probably would have had a better time if it had been a little bit more playful. Yeah, I mean. Honestly, it should have been like animated or yeah. something. Like, I think it that would have. Like, yeah, it feels yeah. like a like a Disney cartoon, which is actually what it was going for. So, who knows? Yeah. But the Disney cartoons usually have more um, <sighs> discernible script. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Like, and I was because I was gonna say like a cartoon. I feel like has a little more leeway. You can be a little more like. I feel like I'm a more forgiving of a world not being super populated in a cartoon. Like than yeah. I am on like a you know a live action movie, but yeah, this movie can be so sparse at times that I don't even know the cartoon thing would be able to patch that over necessarily. And um, one other interesting thing is that he initially considered actually filming it on location in Yosemite National Park. Whoa! And then he, because he's a control freak, mm-hmm. realized almost immediately shooting outside in, in a damn forest was not going to be. Yeah. Was not going to allow him to get the shit he needed to get. He's such a pitoff. He has to have his little world. Yeah, exactly. And um and both of um both Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah who of course went on to be in things like um Ferris Bueller's Day Off and My Beloved Time Cop with John claude Van Damme. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the big three. Legend, the big, Time Cop. <laughs> legend. Yeah, Legend, Time Cop, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She <laughs> plays, but she's probably most known for playing Sloan in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like brand new. Tom Cruise was 21 and she was 17. Mm-hmm. And you, you can see it. They are so... And what he was going for was like true fresh faces. But one interesting thing I was actually reading this book was that Ridley Scott Tom Cruise, Sigourney Weaver, and Brad Pitt, he gave them among their earliest big parts mm. and kind of gave them big showcase things. And he also shepherded Russell Crowe and Michael Fassbender to stardom, like right. true superstardom as well. And so it's interesting for a guy who's not known as an actor's director, he's got great instincts mm. for looks and faces and who might have something. And I, and I think he, like, it's not that he can't be like I really love like Ben Affleck's performance in The Last Duel, for example, and I think that's like something. Like he brought something out of Ben that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't realize that Ben Affleck can play like a foppish nobleman 
kind of mm-hmm. like that sort of thing. So like I think he there are times when he does like he can do it. I think it's just not always in the forefront. I think too he he probably the more stars he worked with and the more movies he made, he realized that a good performance and hiring really like good season like really rock solid performers is another paint for his canvas yeah and that he was underutilizing it earlier a little more earlier in his career and i and i have a feeling too with you know somebody like even you know the guys in the last duel but almost even more so in house of gucci Mm. he's just letting them rock and roll and do you know it's make it big make it fun yeah, that's no. honestly because when you think about it, the best performances are in his movies. Because even Alien, like those are just like he hired those guys because they were the right guys. He's not like mm-hmm. yeah, he's not like a Daniel Day Lewisy type. He doesn't like look for that sort of performer. I think he tries to like get the right people to fit in the slot. If that makes yeah, sense, it, yeah. But I think he does get some. I mean, he obviously you know we're gonna watch these movies to come, but everything from um, Delman Louise, which is a massively huge. Mm-hmm. two and you know two female lead mm-hmm. from a macho director i mean that's really hip and groovy yeah. in the early 90s not many people were doing that also female uh, screenwriter too yeah exactly and all the way to um you know i think performances i've loved recently that we had mentioned you know i think you know i've said it before i think fastbender in um prometheus and alien covenant is fucking phenomenal maybe and the I, best performance in like a franchise anything it's so, and you know, like we said fairly, I think it was like last episode, this idea like a movie lives and dies on its villain, and he is like absolutely amazing as the villain in that movie. <laughs> you know? oh, God, and, yeah. and really, Scott gets good villains mm-hmm. too. Oh, and yeah. that's the and best that part. would of... be to bring the best performance in this movie, Tim Curry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as the devil or whatever. What, the Lord what of Darkness. It? Yeah, he's phenomenal. and He's under a pound of makeup, and that also gets us to another section. The makeup effects done by God King Rob Bottin, who obviously had done the howling with Robert Picardo, did the trans- transformation there, and after seeing the howling, Ridley Scott contacted Botine to do um, Blade Runner, but Rob Botine was busy with the other major 1982 movie, The Thing. Oh my God. Which, of course, probably the greatest, in my opinion, the single greatest practical effects movie ever made. Yeah, (laughs) I would say so. Didn't he almost get like a heart attack? Doing yes. That? Yeah, he wow. he drove himself to like pneumonia, walking pneumonia by how hard he was going on it. But the proof is in the pudding, Rob. Yeah, <laughs> you you kicked ass, my man. Oh, it rule. <laughs> it's truly like yeah, that's a movie I've watched probably a dozen times, and it never gets old. No, it's one of the best movies ever. Yeah, and movie. so then after so he understood you know what kind of thing, but he told him about Legend toward the end of the production of the thing, actually, and Botine read the script and was like, oh, man, look at all these cool characters that I can create <laughs> and build. And he, I mean, he got, you know, they got his, they got their money worth out of him. Like, he yeah. kicks, his stuff kicks ass in this movie. And uh, Tim Curry's is the best out of all of them, his, his design. Yeah. But, like, everybody's character design is phenomenal. Um, yes. Curry was in about a, um, they said it was like a four hour. Oh, um, actually five and a half hours. 
fuck to encase his entire body <sighs> in this costume he's completely unrecognizable the only thing you get really is his voice but he it's it's just tremendous and then apparently um at the end of the day he had to spend an hour in the bath to liquefy the spirit gum that he used to attach everything oh my God. to his body and um I, I, this is an interesting fun fact too curry got so claustrophobic and impatient at one point he just was kind of like losing it they started to tear off the makeup himself oh no and he tore his skin while he was doing it and so they had to shoot around him for a week while he healed oh my god so every like and it's just like that's a cool thing oh um according to botine at the time legend had the largest makeup crew ever dedicated to one project wow how you about can, that you can see and you can it. see it <laughs> yeah the money's there on the screen with the well, well and that's impressive too that like when you think about it there's like maybe like seven or eight like makeup heavy characters yeah and, and they're in a, they're in a lot of the movie oh they're in a lot of the movie and they're uh just it's like it's one of those things where like it's not like a lot of money spread over a hundred different characters it's like each of these characters are like a fucking Cadillac's worth of, you know, yeah. probably of equipment and makeup. It's like, it's insane. Most, most cheaper 80s movies would kill to have one of them. Yeah. You know, and that would yeah. be the, that would be the monster in the yeah. movie. Like, there's only one werewolf, or there were actually more in Howling, but there's like one transformation in the Howling, and that like was the jaw dropper. This has got, you know, dozen mm-hmm. in it. Um so a couple interesting things too is, and I was really proud of myself when I was watching the movie. I, f- I felt my cinephile um, cred- credibility oh. really, really hit hard because when I was watching it, I said, you know what Tom Cruise is reminding me of here is Francois Truffaut's film, The Wild Child. <laughs> Reading the book, Ridley Scott made Tom Cruise watch that movie. And I was like, good call me for, <laughs> for picking wow. up on that. A point to uh, done. Point to me and cinephile nerdery. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, the other thing I want to note um, is that the kid who plays Gump, oh is, man, speaking of cinephile, he's in a German film called The Tin Drum, oh. uh, which was, uh, I believe, won the Cannes Film Festival. He was the lead of it, and probably had it seems to, um, you know, had his had his moment in the sun kind of with that one uh legend came out about six years later and um so p is dubbed that's why he sounds weird because they thought he had too thick of a german accent interesting that's why he because like they what they do is like in the movie the gum and it's interesting. I think it's like a good choice in the sense of like it establishes that the Gump is not like a child. It's like mm. a he's like a weird pan like being or a spirit goblin or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. to, the, to the to the boy's credit, his like acting is pretty like he's energetic. Physical, yeah, his, his, his physicality is all right. Um, it's just it's weird. It's weird. Uh, do you know the voice actor? Did they um ever? So this is a really interesting thing. It was voiced by Alice Platon, who you might know because they also played Blix. Oh, it's that lady. I like yeah. Blix. Is fun. I like Blix. Um, and yeah, we should go through the cast real quick here. Um, Tom Cruise plays um 
Jack O' the Green. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, brother. Put that back in its uh, case. Mia Sarah is Princess Lily. Oh. Tim Curry is Princess the Lord of what? Princess of what? Consider, because sorry. you need a princess in the... I know, but like what kingdom? I don't even know where the hell you guys live. <laughs> the <Sorry>. woods. <laughs> princess of the woods. Of this one uh, lady. Tim Curry's Lord of Darkness. Uh, David Bennett is Honeythorn Gump. Um, Alex Alice Platon is Blix. Billy Barty is Screwball. Cork Hubert is Brown Tom. Oh, I like Brown Tom. Uh, Peter O'Farrell is Pox. Annabelle Landion is Una. Kieran Shaw is Blunder. And of course, Academy Academy favorite, Robert Picardo is Meg Mucklebones. This would be the Woody Harrelson of the week. Yes, if if we were giving that out. So, (laughs) they go into production. Principal Photography begins March 26th, 1984. June 27th, 1984, with 10 days left of filming. The entire set burns down <sighs> uh, <laughs> oh no uh, that they the reportedly flames the set fire leapt more than 100 feet into the air and clouds of smoke could be seen 5 miles away it luckily it happened at lunchtime so no one was hurt okay. but scary and a real bummer and calamity Nonetheless, um, the weeks of the four shooting were abruptly curtailed, though, and they had designed a tracking shot to show the entire set that mm-hmm. had to be cut from the movie. And they had to um, really find a way to work around it. Apparently, they only lost three days moving to another soundstage. Oh, okay. Um, there was, um, yeah, and they had to shoot. You know, they had to get really makeshift about it. They and then the scenes, the underwater scenes, were actually filmed in Florida. Huh. Um. Tom Cruise did all of his own diving and swimming in those scenes too. Good, good diving. So the film, when Scott turned it in to the executives, mm. first cut ran 125 minutes. Wow. Uh he believed there are minor plot points can be trimmed. He got it down to 113. Uh they tested this in California, Orange County, mm-hmm. and um, did not test well. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, really, Scott, <laughs> let me find the quote here. He, uh, he, he, he said, giggling stoners ruined the screening. <laughs> Showing perhaps his conservative side once again. Uh, Goddamn hippies. Um, and so there, it this it it uh, generally it eroded to the 89, 90 minute version that was released in theaters on April eighteenth, nineteen eighty six. It came out August 28th, 1985 in France, so definitely usually when you see stuff like that, it's like, oh, they did not know what the hell to do this and where to put it and everything oh, like no. that. Um, there and, and then also it should be noted that the version in um, England was 95 minutes long. Huh. Um, really, Scott, 
at the time said European audiences are more sophisticated. They accept preambles and subtleties, whereas the U.S. goes for a much broader stroke. He's flailing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's absolutely flailing. This is two in a row. He's getting fucked on. Yeah. And... Yeah. I think that's like a little little bit of cope. A little, just yeah. a little, you little know... smallest bit of cope. Just a little bit. Yeah. And I get yeah. it. I get it. Then the interesting to try and work on it even further, the reason it got delayed to 86 was they decided to rescore the film. Originally, Jerry Goldsmith did the score, which is, a, by from what I understand, much more traditional movie kind of sweeping adventure kind of score. Mm-hmm. Jerry, of course, as we know, uh, score did the excellent score for Alien. Oh, yeah. um, he was replaced by Tangerine Dream, who also rule. Like, good. Don't get they don't get me wrong. I like but them. um it also destroyed uh Scott and Goldsmith's relationship and they never spoke again. Oh, that's deeply sad. Yeah. I and um, Tangerine Dream, damn. Yeah, and so and Tangerine Dream had scored risky business, and I have a feeling the studio was looking to get a little bit of that cruise like Maybe. reminder of like this guy you liked yeah he did the uh, dance uh, with the socks he did the dance and the socks you know it um you know and the uh jerry goldsmith said that this dreamy bucolic setting is suddenly being scored by a techno pop group it seems sort of strange to me <laughs> it's a little weird i mean i don't like it's not the and, uh i just read this too is that goldsmith Spent six months writing songs and dance sequences for the film ahead of time, oh, and they were that's... all cut. So I I understand like you put your heart and soul into something, then it's just yeah. like you're out, you're out here. We're bringing in these, we're bringing in this German techno group. Man, um, he got out, dude. Scott got. I'll do anything. A little, yeah, a little yeah, bit, on the, a little bit on this one. So basically, the movie came out. Um, currently holds a forty one percent on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. Consensus, not even Ridley Scott's gorgeously realized set pieces can save legend from its own tawdry tale, though it may be serviceable to those for those simply looking for fantasy eye candy. Cinema yeah. score, C+. Um, Neil Gaiman, the uh, celebrated fantasy writer, reviewed this for Imagine Magazine. Huh. He stated, Glimmers of intelligence show here. And there in the script, suggesting that William Hotzberg probably had some idea of what he was doing when he wrote this, understanding that fairies are willful, capricious, key, uh, capricious creatures, for example, and will probably make a fairly good novel out of it. But if you go and see the film, don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. And then, um, so the movie. Like a lot of these '80s pictures, found life on home video. Mm-hmm. Kids my age, for the most part, <laughs> and um, you know, developed a following. And of course, really, Scott's subsequent career as a major director and Tom Cruise's meteoric rise as the superstar of the '80s, because of course, Tom's very next film was Top Gun, which that was pretty much that, and he's. 
<laughs> been there at the top of the Paramount Mountain he, that he climbed himself uh, <laughs> to this day. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. He ain't leaving that mountain. Yeah, he owns the damn mountain. Um, but then, in the year 2000, oh, that was that was like a thing. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> uh, Universal unearthed an answer print of the 113-minute preview cut still containing Jerry Goldsmith's score. Uh, Vidger had a few visual anomalies, but if they were digitally replaced, and it was released in 2002 as the director's cut. Mm. Uh, this is currently on the Blu-ray that I have. I did not watch it. We can get to our thoughts on this movie in a moment. I might be a little bit before I watch it. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is um, Ebert did not give the original a good review, but um, felt that the director's cut was a much more solid addition and got to the themes that they were looking for a lot more. Um, the director's cut brought renewed attention to the film and both... Ridley Scott and Tom Cruise have said that this is the preferred version of the movie, even to the extent of Cruise disowning the U.S. version entirely as a ter- stereotypical 80s fantasy. Wow, interesting. Now I want to watch this director's cut. I know, I know. I, and it's, yeah, because this, like I said, this was the first time I saw this movie. You know, I was watching like, Clint Eastwood movies and Die Hard and stuff like that. Those are kind of the 80s movies that mm-hmm. kind of caught my interest. But I was reminded, I, so I, th- I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but um, when I was working at the record store in the early 2000s, there was a guy who I worked with there, still a really good friend of mine, mm-hmm. who a couple years older than me, and he had said, oh, I've never seen Goonies oh. before. And we were oh, golly, probably like 23 22 years old then mm-hmm. and he ended up watching it and he goes that fucking sucked <laughs> oh no that's so funny that's but, terrible and i was like oh come on man it's so good it's the and I, but then i watched it again i was like this is good because i have a memory of it being good yeah it's like heavyweights the movie heavyweights a movie i loved as a kid but then i can there's there's certain movies you watch as a child where you go back to them and even if they still do it for you if you're being like honest to yourself you can tell that like yeah but, this is... and i i don't think any sucks but i do agree it's like it's a dorky kids movie oh yeah triple shuffle dorks yeah i mean and it's like that's fine there's nothing yeah. wrong with that i plan no. on showing our kid goonies you For know sure. yeah and i think that there's a lot of to enjoy about it but i do think that if you miss these movies at a certain age mm-hmm. it's very difficult to like pick them up at a later time. I agree with that. I think that there's a moment when your mind and you're so youthful and imaginative that these can kind of like find you at the right moment. Yeah. No, it's like, it's funny. Cause like, yeah, like I'm giving this movie guff, but like if I were to sit you down, Don, and, and, and show you like a thing from my childhood I love, like Dragon Ball Z, for example. It'd go through one ear and out the other. And, I'm sure, and I'm yeah. sure even <laughs> even some of the weird '80s crap that I saw. Yeah, I show it to you, and you'd be like, "This is weird and probably racist." Yeah, like, <laughs> you watched Sapped when you were seven. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, like there's movies like what's the C. Thomas Howell one? 
um, where he has to go to Harvard, so he does blackface. That came out in the eighties. <laughs> oh, no. Trying to remember the title. <laughs> I feel you. I mean, like, there's like movies like that with like you know, Soul like... Man. Soul Man is what it's called. Oh my god! If you're not aware of this one. Don't look it up. That yeah. dad just yelled from the other room. Don't look it up. <laughs> yeah, see Tom as hell. Come on, buddy. You can also you know. one of the outsiders with Tom Cruise. That's um, true. Yeah, it was, <laughs> he made the but, yes. We, yeah, but yeah, it's it's like I I think like like there's a part of me like I think like when we show it to our daughter when she's like eight, mm-hmm. I love it. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh totally. Well, and like there's like cool like. Like, Tim Curry is great in this movie. It's so funny how, like, you can tell it's Tim Curry because of the way he, like, smirks. And, like, he does, like... And his, like, his... The way he he, like, enunciates things. Yes, it's so, like... He's so, like... It's weirdly... It's, like, overly sensual for what the character should be. Well, I guess uh, Ridley Scott, I mean, cast him based on Rocky Horror. That's I mean, like, seriously up. is like Rocky Horde. It's like his character died and became the devil. The like, yeah, guy was very disappointed and became the devil. It, uh, it, it made me long for. It'd be so great if Tim Curry was Darth Vader. I know <laughs> that would. None of these people want to have fun. No, George Lucas. Like <laughs> yeah, you know, they all take this. That's but that's why this is so successful. If you were like had a tongue in cheek and you were kind of like, yeah, I know. Well, but also like, what was that Danny McBride one? Um. Oh, Hi- I... Your Highness, which was a tribute to all of these movies. Yes. And not great. Listen to this, the long pause there. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I saw the face Don, Don made. It was, you know what? Polite. You're being polite. Why? Well, you know, it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And look, Danny McBride's cool. Like, yeah. Well, all those guys are cool. Danny McBride's cool. David Gordon Green is cool. Natalie Portman's cool. But, you know. Hey, they would acknowledge that too. I think. I think that they would acknowledge that it was a little bit of a stretch, and it was like one of these things. Though it's like, yeah, of course, everybody grew up on these. This everybody knows what we're making fun of, and it comes out. It's like, man, nobody remembers any of this. Yeah, like I've never seen like uh, I've never seen the Neverending Story or like half the. I mean, I've seen Willow. Willow. I feel like Willow's the one that everyone's seen. I've seen I Neverending Story. I actually saw quite a few times. Interesting. Uh, but it was like, again, oh, an RIP to a real one. A Wolfgang Peterson, director of Neverending Story, just passed away. Ah, uh, RIP. That, yeah. another good, that'd be another good uh, movie. No. Yeah. All of his stuff, man. He, he was like a good workman director. Oh, man. Uh, and Das Boot, he made one masterpiece. Yeah, we could yeah, do if like you a... count If you want to count Air Force One. Get off my plane. <laughs> a Peterson Emmerich? Like a, a, a German expat? Well, like, And they're like come from different eras, too, so the movies they make are kind of well, different. I think he got to throw in God King Paul Verhoeven Ooh. in the mix, too, for the yeah. the European like European sleazeball. Yeah, the, the central, the northern, yeah, like the Dutch, the German. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like but that. It is, but they're, all those guys, you know, same, similar age. Same school as um, the you know, Scots. Yeah, and and still and selling the same ultra slick. Like they came to America, they seemed to discover what Americans liked. Yeah, they they went to all their meetings. You know, they brought their hamburgers <laughs> to to distribute ceremonial ceremonial so pocket hamburgers. Pocket hamburger. <laughs> the Americans were like, "Oh, you know, good for you." You know, you know our you know our cultural standards. You brought Big Macs. <laughs> <laughs> they sniffed the hamburger. Oh, good year. <laughs> <laughs> Trump's like, green light it. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Only action scenes. <laughs> legend. It's legend. It's so boring. <laughs> Not enough drama. Not Man. like one arm boxer. <laughs> I understood one on Boxer. He got his arm cut off. He wanted revenge. I, I do too hate people that are not from China. <laughs> China. China. Oh my god. <laughs> I think Trump, we need to show Trump one on Boxer. That's how we're going to save the world is to introduce him to the Shaw brothers and give him something to do. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that will he'll just stop doing his shit and just become like, like a weird I'm really, really into martial arts. <laughs> Ronald Shaw, great guy, great uh, guy. I went to Studio Fifty Four with him. <laughs> oh my God! Okay, uh, we're crazy. Yeah, you know, because I mean, Legend is a weird movie, and yeah. I think I think we're getting to the right point, which is it does something like this. I think does matter, like when you have kind of like. It's weird to use this word when describing anything by Ridley Scott, but kind of like a whimsy. Yes. To you, and kind of like you just want to like see neat sights, mm. and with these like angelic young people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I'm dissing on this movie, but I, I one of my favorite movies is The Dark Crystal, which is even more like like Jim Henson originally wanted to make The Dark Crystal like a silent film, like mm-hmm. no, and that movie's pure just like tone poem visuals and what vibes. Do th- what do you think? Um... Like there's there's a part of me that's like okay the fantasy stuff in the eighties is just kind of holdover from the hippies who ended up working in Hollywood and were still stoners and still into that stuff, but like what do you think is the uh, accounts for like the rise of fantasy being like the dominant genre today in well, entertainment? Because the dominant people in the culture are nerds, and so uh, yeah. yeah, that's kind of like I think the brunt of it because it's just like yeah like in the 60s it was like a niche or a niche it thing. was like a counterculture thing to be into like phil k dick or um jr tolkien or yeah, something like exactly. that exactly and so and then those guys end up becoming like you know yuppies and like you know turning that into mass culture the first round of mass culture and then yeah, like the the kids of those people watch all that stuff, and they like you know what I mean. I think it's just yeah, and I think like and I think there's like the just because like everything is so competitive nowadays, and like you, you the main goal is to be a nerd so you can get into Microsoft and get a six figure job. It's more like palatable. Like being a nerd is like kind of what's in because of our current constraints mm-hmm. yeah and so that's why shit like fucking you know hogwarts is so popular or whatever uh, i think when, yeah, I don't know. 45 year olds it's trying to say what school they go i don't obviously i don't know anything about it but what school or what club they're in isn't it like clubs or I it's don't school know. it's like it's like i think it's like schools it's no it's not schools it's like they're the house is within a school. There we go. And it's like, and, and it's, I mean, well, look, JK Rowling sucks anyway, so fuck her shit. But, uh, like, yeah, uh, but she like, she seems it, like a real lamo. Yeah, she seems, no, no bueno. She seems no, no bueno. bueno no, no, no bueno from <laughs> the, the, hey, chill, Don. 
That's like, you know, I don't cast judgment, man, but she just seems no bueno. <laughs> hey, dude, it's me. Hey, it's Whistler. Hey, Whistler, hey, Whistler. You know, I've met a lot of people on the road in yeah. my time. I've seen a lot of, and I don't, I met that guy. I, you know, I met her in 77. Yeah. At a fog hat show. <laughs> And I got bad, bad vibes. We yeah. we dropped acid together. Usually, it's a good thing. I've dropped acid with many celebrated novelists. I was doing coke with Norman Mailer and D. Snyder. <laughs> In the back of whiskey, a go go. In the '82. <laughs> Although I said to Norman, I was like, you know, naked in the dead. I've seen that. I know that. <laughs> Why do you have to punch Gore, man? He's a friend of mine. Just, you know, you're kind of one of these guys. It's like you get one step forward and two steps back, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit of that old foot and mouth disease. <laughs> I said the same thing to JK. I was like, you created this wonderful fantasy world. Nobody got to get into all of this. Yeah. <laughs> all this weird backwards mumbo jumbo. <laughs> You're saying all those things you say? All I'm seeing is foot, meat, and mouth. <laughs> I know. I'm not. I don't think I'm getting anywhere near the damn Philosopher's Stone or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> yeah. How am I going to enjoy this Leonard Skinner concert now? Yeah, my, my daughter, vampire hunter Jessica Beale. <laughs> She was going to bed one night when she was a little one. I was like, I want to read you a story. But she was like, how about that Potter kid? And I said, no, no, no. That author, she's a witchy woman. That's why we're reading John Grisham. (laughs) So that I can get behind a lawyer running. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's a swamp. Oh, that was an all-timer. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with legend, but I'm I'm having fun. It's very little. Very little. <laughs> oh golly. Yeah. Um, did you hear that Jeff Bezos gave notes to the writers of the Lord of the Rings show? They didn't take them. He's like, it's probably a good thing. That's what I assume he sounds like. Um Oh no. Imagine that. Like, you you know that if Apple had had their network when Steve Jobs was alive, he would absolutely be coming down to, like, the severance writer's room being like, here's some ideas and you have to use them. Yeah, he would force them. He'd be like, (laughs) Adam Scott has to smile. Yeah. Smile more, Adam. Yeah. He has to be happy. He's a happy guy. He comes down, Ted Lasso smiles too much. Yeah. (laughs) Shave the mustache. One note. Shave the mustache. <laughs> That's like uh, when uh, the the Napster guy tells Zuckerberg yeah, to get rid of the the. Yeah, uh, yeah it's the same deal. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah, that's the difference between Ted Lasso being a beloved show and a Meg and the show. <laughs> the show, yeah. That is, it would have been the next Sopranos had he been, you know, faced. Well, I mean, we don't even know. There's no comparison point. It would have just been meteoric. That's true. <laughs> Ted Lasso would be president right now. Jason Sudeikis would have to be playing the character as president. No one, no one voted for you, Sudeikis. We voted for Lasso. Yeah, he'd be our god emperor. I'm not. I, you know, I, I'm surprised that the, like the, the, 
the, what are they? The pod safe Johns. Oh yeah, the pod <laughs> haven't run like a campaign like that. Like we need a little bit less Trumps and a little bit more lassos. <laughs> yeah, Mitt Romney got it. Dresses and, him for uh, Halloween. <laughs> oh, that was so weird. Yeah, it's a little off. This is way off topic, but that whole thing he did with Kristen Cinema, where they did like cosplay as Ted Lasso and like the boss lady, it was weird. The babyfication of America. We're just well, and also now. like they're all like they're total freaks. Yes, these people are total freaks, and they're supposed to be respected or in charge of something. No. No, no, no. I, no. I respect none of them. They're all bad. Yeah, they're all weird freaks. Yeah, there's like a couple of good eggs here and there, but it's like mostly just hell. <laughs> they, they get steamrolled the second they get like offered a Vanity Fair cover. They're like, oh, I'd rather do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'd rather become a uh, talking head. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, it, you know, I don't I'm not in love with this movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I ever will be. Mm. I think that there's some noble stuff in it. If you want to take away, it's a gorgeous, the makeup's rules. Yeah. I imagine the Jerry Goldsmith score is good because the Tangerine Dream score is also good. <laughs> Rob yeah. Bottin, Tim Curry. It, all that's there. Yeah. Picardo. But so the movie should note uh, was budgeted at 24.5 million made. 23.5 million worldwide. No bueno. No, no bueno. bueno. Yeah, like it's a no bueno. No bueno, <laughs> no dude. bueno for chill done. Chill done, <laughs> dude. So it doesn't do well. Another yeah. one. And Ridley at this point in 1986 is a little lost. He's successful. He's still yeah. got RSA. It's yeah. all, ha- you know, he's still there. I also have to wonder, 1986, he's watching his brother hit a grand slam. Oh, man. American yeah. Zeitgeist home run. Oh, my God. With Top yeah. Gun, his little brother. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But something yeah. tells me that Ridley Scott, as much as he loved his brother, and he totally did, was competitive. Oh, is for competitive. Sure. And so Ridley Scott was scrambling for mm-hmm. what to do next. Of course, 1986, this is peak Thief of Hearts era. So where does Ridley Scott go next? We'll find out next week with someone to watch over me. His attempt, from what I understand, at the erotic thriller genre. Oh my God, just just to say this, uh, I've never heard of this movie. And I'm just going to give a little teaser. Stars Tom Berenger. I know, I know. Ah! That should have that should have you. you should have, do we have your attention? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've also got the attention of the gump. Yeah. I love Tom Berenger. <laughs> and so we're gonna take a look at this one. I am really looking like looking forward to this one. I I'm hoping we we, we find ourselves a hidden gem. Same. This one a really underrated gem. Uh paired up next week with his brother Tony's film revenge and uh this one also by all accounts i've not seen it is a nasty crime thriller Mm, i love nasty uh, yeah you had me a nasty yeah nasty (laughs) uh and this film came out in 1990 a few years later um this one stars kevin costner anthony quinn and madeline stowe um 
I am really looking forward to this one. Um, one thing to note, um, this Quentin Tarantino, who loves every Tony Scott movie, uh, says this might be his best one. Oh, my God. And so I'm. it's going to be a fun, seedy, erotic thriller, crime thriller kind of week next week with the Academy Academy. Get us out of the forest. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Get away from those unicorns. You don't want but, to hurt the unicorns. Well, check to see where they're at. I mean, Ridley is coming off of some kind of, despite the fact that both Legend and Blade Runner are in many circles totally beloved today, in the moment, he's licking his wounds. Yep. Meanwhile, Tony Scott's coming off of two blockbusters, mm-hmm. Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. But perhaps Tony wants to do something a little bit more up his alley mm. rather than working for this. He's using some some of that old studio cachet to make, make something a little bit darker, a little bit seedier, a little bit rougher. Something for grandpa. Something for the grandpas out there. <laughs> the horniest grandpas. But we're looking forward to that. So uh, we will, you know, we're he- leaving the woods. All is well. Dark Princess Lily is no longer dark. Jack is da- doing his dance. Yeah. We're waving goodbye. We're waving goodbye. Gonna... Oh, it's Meg. It's Meg Mucklebones. Bye, Dude. Meg. Bye. Bye, Meg. Bye, Gump. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Leave my woods so my unicorns can heal. Uh, <laughs> have you done an episode on Patrice O'Neill? <laughs> I, I, I gotta say it too, and I gotta apologize to Ridley Scott. Guess who was one of those giggling stoners? <laughs> this <laughs> guy. <laughs> I was like, bueno, bueno, Ridley. Bueno. <laughs> okay. That's the weed, you. dude. We will see you all next week. Bueno, bueno, bueno. bueno.